Hey, this is Aaron Brockett, lead pastor of Traders Point Church. Regardless of where you are tuning in around the world or if you call Indianapolis home, I just wanna thank you for tuning in to our weekly message podcast. Our prayer and desire is that God would take the content of these messages and use it to encourage you in your relationship with Jesus as you discover God's purpose for your life. All right, how's everybody doing today? Good to see you. Well, I just want to uh, welcome all of our campuses right now, wherever you may be joining us from, north, downtown, west, here at our Northwest campus. So good to have all of you today. And it's hard to believe we're uh, in full swing of the Christmas season, uh, which uh, usually around this time of the year, I begin to just do some evaluating of the year that we've just come through. And I start thinking about the upcoming year and maybe some goals that I want to achieve or maybe some things that I want to do a little bit different. And uh, I just want to encourage you to maybe take advantage of these next few weeks. I know it's crazy, uh, the holiday season, but even as a, as a church team, uh, we do the same thing. We just kind of reevaluate, kind of, hey, where did God lead us this last year? Where are we going into the next year? And what you just saw on church news is really kind of the culmination of that. We just want to be prepared for where God's leading next. And uh, one of the best definitions of um, ministry was given to me when I was in college. Um, some of you might recognize uh, the name uh, Rick Warren, a pastor out at Saddleback Church in California. And he said, you know, uh, your job as, a, as not only a pastor, but as a child of God is very similar to a surfer. And he said, uh, you're not trying to create the waves, you're just trying to ride them. And so you just anticipate the waves that God sends, and then you just want to get in on what God is doing. And uh, as a church, we've just tried to follow that. Sometimes we get it wrong, but sometimes we get it right. And so our year in giving is really, that's the focus of it, is we just want to figure out what, what waves is God sending us and how can we get in on it and ride them. And so really our year in giving goes to kind of two big initiatives that both involve people. The first is just vulnerable kids. And we're going to be talking more and more about that in 2019 and uh, just what that means for us to come alongside uh, those who are fostering and adopting and, and uh, doing what we can to care for vulnerable children. So our year-end giving is going to go towards an organization called Hands of Hope. And, you know, God describes himself in the Bible as a father to the fatherless. It's at the heart of the very gospel message. So we're going to lean into that. The other is just uh, people that are far away from Jesus in our city, and they need the hope that can be found in him. And one of the best ways that we've found to reach them is by just continuing to, to go, continuing to launch campuses and launch new works. And it's amazing. In the last several years, we've uh, launched out and started three different campuses. And we've always sent about 250 people to seed each campus to get it going. It's amazing now who's showing up at all of our campuses. Both north and downtown will have anywhere between 16 to 1,800 people today. Uh, our west campus that meets portable in a school will have anywhere around like 850 to 900 people. It's just incredible uh, what God has done to multiply that. And we feel like God wants to do more. And so we've identified a couple of areas in our city where we want to launch campuses in, in the coming year. And so all of our year in giving is going to go towards making sure that we get in on what God is doing. So I want to thank you for your generosity here at Year In. If you have a Bible, uh, would you uh, meet me in Genesis 32? That's our passage today. And I actually want to read where we're going, and then we'll kind of back up and kind of get there together. So I want to read this passage, and keep in mind that we're jumping in about three-fourths of the way into this guy named Jacob's life. 
And so, especially if you don't really know a lot about Jacob, you might feel a little bit lost, but that's okay, just hang tight, because uh, we're going to come back to this. But let me just read this uh, to start our time together. It says, during the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. Anybody have questions? <laughs> all right, you should, all right. His two servant wives, more questions, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all of his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go. Unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Well, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you right now and I just ask that in these next few moments together that um, we would as much as we are able to just turn down the volume of everything going on in our lives. Some, for some of us, that might require us to, to shut off our phones so that we're not distracted in these next few minutes. Some of this, that means that we're just going to need to force ourselves to really just tune in for the next 25, 30 minutes to what it is that you might say, because we don't want to miss it. And so I pray that your voice would overpower mine. And that your spirit would be present in this room. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen. How many of you have already uh, gotten the Christmas tree, decorated it, it's in your house? How many of you show those hands? All right, we're proud, yeah. Uh, we have. All right, I, I love the Christmas tree. Christmas trees are a big time, big deal this time of the year. It uh, didn't always used to be that uh, way for me. I, uh, I used to um, be a bit, you know, kind of curmudgeon about it. And I would just be like, let's just go to Lowe's and just buy a fake tree. And we'll only have to pay for a tree once. And we'll just kind of, you know, set that up every year. But in the last few years, I've actually, like my inner Clark Griswold has kind of emerged. And uh, I'm just like, you know, we need to pack the kids up. And, and I wish we had a station wagon, but we don't. And let's just, let's just go out and let's find a real tree. And so we did this this year, the day after Thanksgiving, as we packed up our family. We ventured out uh, to a local tree farm. And we walked out across this uh, field filled with all kinds of trees of different shapes and sizes. And we found the one perfect tree in the whole field. And we got it. And uh, then we stood in line for over an hour. I brought a picture of it. This is the line we stood in, in uh, the cold, and uh, I'm actually not complaining. I actually enjoyed every minute of it. The hot chocolate and the warm apple cider donuts sent straight from heaven uh, kind of comforted me, and it was actually a really fun day uh, to just get the tree that we wanted, and we go home, and I love everything about Christmas trees. I like the look of it. I like the decorations of it, and uh, Christmas trees are a big deal. It's kind of a centerpiece this time of the year. Did you know that trees actually play a, a big role in the Bible. That they're all over. Both, they're used both literally and metaphorically from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, we see that God places a tree in the middle of the garden called the, the tree of knowledge. And the message of that tree was you can choose to trust me or you can sort of choose to do your own thing. God will let you decide. Um, in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it's describing the city of heaven 
And God places another tree in the middle of that city. It's called the tree of life. And the message of that tree is that God has promised to bring healing to the nations. Isn't that an incredible thought? David one time said that uh, if you uh, listen to the voice of God, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of living, living water. Your, your leaves will always be green. Uh, Jeremiah would say something similar. He would say those who put their hope and their confidence in God, they're like a tree whose roots go down so deep that even though there's a drought going on above the surface, your life still produces fruit. Jesus would one time say in description of our relationship with him, he, he described it this way. He said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And the only thing that you need to do is just stay connected to me. Trees are used all over the Bible. They're, they're a big, big deal. And when you come to the very first chapter of the very first book in the New Testament, you, we find another kind of tree. It's actually Jesus' family tree. I don't know how many of you have ever uh, maybe done a Bible reading plan or maybe you've decided, you know what, I'm going to read my Bible this year. And so you uh, are all excited to get a cup of coffee and you turn to the New Testament and then you start reading. And 30 seconds into it, you're about ready to give up. Because it's just, Matthew chapter 1 is just a bunch of names. It's just like this person begat that person who begat that person who begat that person. I don't even know what begat means, but a whole bunch of begatting going on in Matthew chapter 1. And, and we look at this here in the first two verses of, of the first chapter. It says, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, the man that we just read about a little bit earlier. So we see here that this is the family tree of Jesus. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever done a study of your genealogy before, maybe you've done the Ancestry.com thing, but chances are if you have, it's because um, you're just sort of doing it as a hobby or you were just kind of interested to know who you're related to. It's a kind of a fun thing to do. Now in the first century, nobody did this as a hobby. Nobody researched their family line just because they were trying to pass the time. It was a big, big deal in the first century Jewish world because your family tree was your sense of identity. It told you who you were. In fact, it gave you a sense of credibility for better or for worse. In fact, in the uh, first century Jewish world, your family tree was your birth certificate, your social security card, your driver's license, and your background check all wrapped up into one. That's like who you were. So Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's the only gospel writer that begins his introduction of Jesus the Messiah with a family tree. And the reason why is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. It's a big deal to them. And it's not surprising that he would do so. What is surprising is who Matthew chooses to include in the list. You see, bloodlines, they matter. And that's the message of Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I was reminded of this a couple years ago. Uh, our, our family's never really been big pet people, not because we don't like pets, but because we had kids. And we didn't want to clean up any additional messes than what our kids were creating. Uh, but we foolishly made the promise several years ago to our kids that once they got old enough to help, <coughs> yeah, right, that, they, that, that we could get a pet. So we, just, we decided on a dog. Then we, once we said, okay, well, what kind of a dog? We decided on a particular breed. Then we went out to, to find that dog. And we found a breeder uh, about an hour away. And uh, so we get there. We're like, we want to get a, a lab. And so uh, we go to the breeder several months prior to us uh, getting a dog. And uh, because bloodlines matter, I said, I want to meet the mom and the dad. 
because I want to know what kind of a dog we're going to get. I want to know their temperament. I want to know what they look like. And so he showed me the dad. His dad's name was Bear. That's awesome. All right, that's, that'll tell you all you need to know. He was a huge dog, big, mean bark. And, and then I met, we met his mom, and his mom had just like this really sweet disposition and good temperament. And I'm like, okay, I want the puppy from those two because bloodlines matter. And so this is our puppy. His name is Winston. And he'll be, he'll be, uh, oh, that's right, that's right, buddy. <laughs> and uh, he'll be, uh, he, He'll be two weeks, or he'll be a year old here in a couple of weeks, and, and he's a good-looking dog. He's got, like, this big forehead, and he's got this fierce bark, but yet he's, like, really, really good with the kids because bloodlines matter. Yes, I know. You're, you're not even listening to me anymore, right? <laughs> all right, take that down. All right, so, so it's not surprising Matthew would start his introduction of Jesus the Messiah with a family tree. Bloodlines matter. What is surprising is who he chooses to include on the list. Matthew doesn't edit out any of the embarrassing family members. <laughs> any of you want to do that sometimes? The holidays kind of remind us of that. Any, any of you want to prune your family tree? If you like you could. <laughs> How about this? How many of you, uh, whenever you talk about that family member, you whisper their name when you talk about them? Have you ever noticed this? It's like, hey, is Uncle Steve coming to Christmas this year? It's like, why are we whispering their name? Because... Because we just all know, it's like, man, I can't believe I'm related to that person. Jesus had plenty of them in his family tree. Matthew includes men, which is not surprising because this was a patriarchal society. But because of that, it is surprising that Matthew includes women in the genealogy. He lists several of them. And we'll talk about a couple of them in this series. He includes liars and cheats and manipulators and adulterers. Jesus had, he was related to some embarrassing people. Here's what it says to us is that Jesus came through imperfect people for imperfect people. He didn't clean any of it up. Matthew said, this is, this is Jesus' family line. In fact, if your family tree could be symbolized with a Christmas tree, it's not the one in Rockefeller Center. The big, beautiful one that just looks so picturesque and great. Jesus' family Christmas tree looks more like that. And some of you are wondering what that nasty-looking tree was doing up here. That's why. See, our family lines, most of us can relate more to that than the one in Rockefeller Center. Because Jesus' family tree was pretty messed up. And Matthew is trying to communicate something to us from that. And so in this series, we're going to look at a few of these limbs of his tree. First one I just want to look at is the, the limb of Jacob. We've already looked at a little bit of his story. Let me just kind of tell you a little bit about Jacob. His story is found in Genesis chapters 25 to 49, if you want to do any reading of your own. Uh, from his birth to his death, those chapters just record his life. And the Bible gives us a lot more information about Jacob than it does a lot of other people uh, in the Bible. And, and as I was studying his life over the last couple of weeks, the, the term that just kept sort of coming to the surface of my mind was this phrase right here, that Jacob was an unqualified hero. That he was a hero, no doubt. Like God uses Jacob in a tremendous way as part of his redemptive plan. But for the life of me, as I study through his life, I don't know why. Like Jacob is far from perfect. And I'm sitting here going, now I don't understand why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Because he doesn't seem to be any better. Jacob just keeps seeming to make a mess of things. And, 
And Jacob emerges through the scriptures simultaneously as, as one of the most important figures in God's redemptive plan and one of the most messed up. And there's something about that that just sort of brings me a strange amount of comfort. Because if God could use somebody like Jacob, then maybe God could use somebody like me and you. See, here was Jacob's deal. Not so different than us. Jacob was born into a dysfunctional family. And all of us are to some degree. Even those of us whose families are really healthy and really good, there's still some kind of dysfunction that is there because we're all people. We're all broken. And Jacob's mom, Rebecca, and his dad, Isaac, they had their baggage that they brought in from their family of origin. And so they kind of bring that into to their family life, into their marriage. And so here's how Jacob chose to cope with the dysfunction in his family. He chose to be a manipulative person. And I don't think it was because he was trying to be a bad guy. I just think that's just how he dealt with it. He, he, you, you look at his whole life, at least most of it, through about three-fourths of the way through his life. And Jacob was always trying to control his circumstances. And he was always trying to control people. In fact, he was born into this world trying to control things. In Genesis 25, verse 26, when we uh, are told about his birth, his, his mom had, had twins, and his older brother Esau was born first. It says, then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. So Jacob was born into this world trying to control his situation. He's like reaching out of the womb, grabbing a hold of his twin brother's heel, like, get back in here, I'm going to be born first. And, and Isaac and Rebekah, they see this tendency in him, and so they go, oh, well, we'll call him Jacob. And the reason why is because the name Jacob means deceiver. It means manipulator. It means a control freak. I actually added that third one there. It's actually technically not the definition. But deceiver and manipulator, yeah. And Jacob is always trying to, to control people and circumstances in his life. We just see this pattern where he cuts corners. He tells half-truths. He manipulates the situation. In fact, he, uh, he wanted that firstborn blessing thing so badly that um, maybe the most well-known story attached to him is his brother Esau comes in from a hunting trip and he's really, really hungry. And so Jacob is preparing dinner and Jacob cons his brother into trading his future for his appetite. And it splits the family apart. And Esau is so furious with, with Jacob that Jacob packs up his things and, and he goes on the run for most of the rest of his life. And unfortunately, Jacob never learned his lesson. Here's the thing that we see from him. The more out of control his life got, the more he tried to control things. And he just made a bigger mess. And I'm just wondering if, if anybody listening to this right now is a lot like me and you can relate to that. Any professed control freaks in the room? You, you know you are if you're sitting there and you're actually annoyed right now because you're not controlling anything. <laughs> you're just like, I wish I could control what you're saying right now. I wish I could control the length of this service right now. I just let, let me get out of here so that way I can control some stuff. And, and not all that's bad. For some of us, it's just because we work hard, we, we get things done, but, but oftentimes it makes things worse. And so if you're unhappy at work, maybe you just try all the harder to position and posture, and it just makes matters worse. Or maybe you're in a relationship right now and it's not going very well and so you hover and you suffocate and it just pushes the person further from you. Maybe you're discontent with your finances and instead what you do is you just cling to money and possessions all the more and it just makes matters worse. And so Jacob would say to us, man, the more that I try to control what it feels out of control, the more things spin out of control. And later when he was... 
it was time for him to get married, um, he tries to control that whole deal. And so he sees this young lady that he would really like to marry. And uh, so he meets her father-in-law, Laban. He says, I really want to marry your daughter. And he doesn't want Jacob to marry that daughter. He wants to, Jacob to marry his other daughter. And so he says, well, the only way you're going to marry the daughter that you want to marry is if you work for me for seven years. See, uh, Jacob's father-in-law was just as big of a manipulator as Jacob was. And Jacob's like, all right, I'll control this situation. I'll do it. I'll, I'll work for you. He worked for seven years for the hand of Rachel. When he finally does it, his father-in-law didn't actually think he'd do it. So now he's like, well, I, I don't want you to marry her. I want you to marry this other daughter. So here's what his father-in-law does. On Jacob's wedding day, he throws a big party, gets him drunk, and Jacob sleeps with the wrong woman on his wedding day. That'll put a damper on the honeymoon. Like their whole family like, ends up on the Maury Povich show or something. I mean, it's just a, a bad, bad deal. And Jacob's like, man, forget that. If you're going like, to betray me like that, then I'll betray you. And he tries to control that whole situation. His father-in-law gets furious with him. And Jacob goes on the run, not only from his father-in-law Laban, but he's simultaneously on the run from his older brother Esau, who is still mad with him for stealing the family blessing. Jacob is a mess. And the more out of control things got in his life, the more complicated the circumstances, Jacob would just try to come in and try to manage and manipulate, coerce and control to the point that by the time that we catch up to him in Genesis 32, what we just read, he's utterly exhausted. J Jacob's health isn't doing good. He's not sleeping at night. He is stressed up to his eyeballs. And maybe this time of the year, you feel a little bit that way. I mean, for some of us, we're not super excited about the month ahead because it's so crazy. It's so busy. And so I just want to ask you to finish this statement right here. There's no wrong answer, only honest ones. Just finish this statement right here. When my life feels out of control, I... How do you handle it? When life feels out of control, I, 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 I worry. When life feels out of control, I'm stressed, I... I lash out, maybe for others of you, when life feels out of control, you, you sort of shut down. You're like, well, I'm just going to run the other way. See, there's no wrong answer to this, only the right one, because only when you're honest about this can you begin to kind of turn things around and begin to find a place of healing. So, so, like, nobody's grading you on this. Just be honest. And now the next question I want you to ask is, is it working? Is it working? And for so many of us, we just never fully learn our lesson. We're just like, man, the more out of control things get, the more I try to hover, the more I try to control, the more, and you end up just making a bigger mess of things. And I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he gives these really compassionate and empathetic words in Matthew chapter 11. This might sound familiar to many of you. Jesus would say this, come to me, all of you, not just the the good ones, not just the ones that have got it all together, but all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, which, if we're honest, is all of us this time of the year. And I love this statement. He goes, and I will give you rest. And isn't that an incredible statement? The next sentence, though, is a little bit confusing because he just said, I want to give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke was something that you put on an oxen to plow the fields. You're like, okay, wait a second, Jesus. Uh, you just told me you wanted me to find some rest. Now you're telling me to go to work. All right, we'll get back to that in a minute. He goes, he goes, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. So here's, I think, the pushback for some of us whenever I say, you know, 
you don't need to control your situation. You don't need to try to lean in and worry about it as you're sitting there going, now wait a second, if I don't worry about it, who will? Classic control freak line. It's really like awkwardly quiet in here, all right? This is, all, this is the service with all the control freaks. I get it, all right? No, you're like, no, who, if I don't work hard, then who will? If I don't take responsibility, who will? Right? So Jesus is saying, come to me, those who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'm going to give you rest. And then he says, and then take my yoke upon you. So, so he's not telling you that you shouldn't go to work. He's just telling you you should work smarter. He says, take my yoke upon you. Now, in the, in the first century world, in an agricultural society, they would place a, a yoke on an oxen to plow the field. And if, and if it wasn't a custom-made yoke, then it would rub up against the oxen all day long. And by the end of the day, this oxen is just rubbed raw, and it can't work as long. But, it, but a good farmer would actually make a custom yoke for the oxen. They, they, would, they would measure it out to where it, it actually fit the oxen better and put cushioning on it. So that way the oxen could work even harder, but it's working smarter. This, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, to put my yoke upon you. It's a custom-made yoke. And then he says, I want you to, to, to work um, smarter, not harder. See, we learned this lesson from what Jesus has said, is that rest is not inactivity. Rest is a condition of your soul. Am I, am I preaching to anybody today? Because it's, at least at the Northwest campus, it is very, very quiet, all right? I'm trusting the other campuses are very lively, all right? Something tells me it's not going to get much better. All right, so rest is not inactivity. Rest is a condition of your soul. It is an inner disposition. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah would say this to us in Isaiah chapter 40. He, he, says, uh, he says, those who find rest in the Lord will, will find strength and will Mount up with wings like eagles. There's a reason. Have you ever stopped to wonder why it says eagles? Like it doesn't say you'll mount up with wings like birds. And I think the reason why is because you know and I know that not all birds fly the same. Have you ever, um, I've been walking through a field uh, one time and, and I uh, actually kicked up a covey of quail. You know, you know what quail are? Like they're tiny little birds. They look like flying mice. Uh, they're like tiny little birds, and their wings flap like a thousand flaps a second, right? They're just, and so if you've ever kicked up a covey of quail, it will scare you to death. Because they're like, <laughs> just like, ah. And it, like they're just frantically flapping. And the ironic thing is they're not, they don't seem to really be getting very far. You ever seen an eagle fly? Oh, man, uh, I, I've seen a, a bald eagle out at my house a couple of times over the last several years, and it's amazing. No matter what I'm doing, I'll just, like, stop and watch it because it's so majestic. And, and it's, it doesn't seem as if it's exerting that much effort, but it's going much farther and faster than a quail. Here's what an eagle does. When an eagle takes off, it, it just flaps once. And it actually looks around. You know what it's saying? How you like me now. Right, that's, it's just like gliding. Or, here, here's another way of saying it. it it's, it's flying, not flapping. And Isaiah says to us, you'll mount up with wings like eagle. If you transfer this over to God, you'll, you'll find his strength. You'll, you'll do more flying than you'll do flapping. That's what he's saying. 
that rest is not inactivity, it is a condition of your soul. And so Jacob is trying to learn this lesson. I think if he were here today, he would say that. He would say, man, the more I tried to manipulate, the more ironically things just spun out of my control. Because self-reliance will wear you out. See, if your identity is tied too closely to your circumstances, the ones we try to control, then success, when it goes well, will go to your head and failure will go to your heart. And it just, that's a recipe for exhaustion. Either way, because when you achieve success and it goes to your head, then you're just like, well, I just got to keep one up in it. And then whenever the failure goes to your heart, you don't feel motivated to go any further. And I don't think that Jacob was trying to be a bad guy when he's trying to manipulate it. I think that Jacob was really wrestling with his identity and God looks at him with compassion, not disdain. And so Jesus comes to him in chapter 32, by the time we catch up to him, Jacob is on the run. He is running from Laban. He's running from Esau to the point that he takes all of his family and possessions, splits them into two camps, sends one in one direction and the other in the other direction. And here is his reasoning. If one of them catches up to me, they'll only destroy half of me. That's where things had gotten in his life. And he's utterly exhausted when a man, it's either an angel or Jesus himself, meets Jacob in his greatest time of need. And so we circle back to the passage that we started with. It says, this left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That is how desperate he is. And notice he's still trying to control things. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob, which means deceiver, manipulator. And the man says, oh, no, no, no. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. And one of the things that, the reason why I believe that this man is perhaps Jesus himself is because every time in the Bible, when God changed somebody's life, he changed their name. And Jesus says to Jacob, oh, no, 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 you're no longer defined by your dysfunctional family. You're no longer defined by your manipulation. I'm changing your name today, and the name Israel means God will prevail. It's this idea that he's saying, hey, hey Jacob, why, why don't you just rest in me? Jacob, why don't you just transfer all those things that you're trying to control on to me? And really, this is an invitation to every single one of us this time of a year that is maxed out and burned out and exhausted and we're just running a million miles an hour. Those of us who are doing a whole lot of flapping and very little flying. He comes to us at this end of this year and he just said, would you, would you just find rest for me? God's not looking at you, shaming you. God's looking at you with compassion. Like, why are you working that hard? You don't have to. You can take my yoke upon you. It's actually much lighter than you think. And you'll renew your strength like an eagle. And you'll fly. You'll run and you'll not grow weary. And you won't faint. You see, Christmas is a message that in which God says to us, I want to give you a gift that you never thought to even ask for. I want to give you a gift that you never thought you would imagine that you would need. I want to give you a gift that you certainly don't deserve. And through the details of the Christmas story found in Matthew chapter 1, and all of Jesus' family tree, this is the invitation of Christmas. Would you just come to God as you are? And here's why. God will not bless who you pretend to be. 
And the word blessing is not like monetary possessions. We need to get rid of that definition. It could potentially include that, but that's not what it's attached to. You know what blessing is? Blessing is an inner contentment. Blessing is an inner joy. Blessing is an inner strength. Blessing is when all the stuff is swirling around me that's out of control, that, that I'm trusting somebody who is in control. Blessing is my roots go deep to the water. doesn't matter if I'm in a drought. Because God has actually provided this from the inside out. That's what Jesus' family tree communicates to every one of us. Matthew chapter 1 says, why are you posing? Why are you pretending? Why are you saying it's fine when you're not fine? Why are you being religious? You don't need to be. Just look at family's tree. Look at the people he came through. Look at the people he came for. They're imperfect people just like you and just like me. Just relax. See, the message of Christmas, thankfully, is that God does not see you and me as we are. He sees us for who we could be. So he goes, man, just let, let your guard down and just come to me as you are. And I know that for, for many of us, the inner argument that you're having with me right now is I don't want to do that because that requires vulnerability. And I know from experience what vulnerability gets me. But the people in my life that have hurt me, it's because I got vulnerable with them and then they used that against me. They went after that. I, I, I got real before and actually those people turned their backs on me. And that's a very, very real pain. And I think that David knew that pain. And that's why he writes this promise to us in Psalm 51. He says to God, God, you do not want to burn offering. Now, we don't do burn offerings anymore nowadays, but we do offerings. We do. We offer God our resources and our time and our energy and our worship. We come in here and David says, actually, God's not nearly as interested in all those things as what he is. Here's what he's interested in. The sacrifice God desires is a broken spirit. And that's not like not a bad thing. Like God doesn't want to see you broken. A broken spirit is another name of vulnerability. You just stop pretending. Just come to him as you are. That's what God wants. And then he gives us this promise. God, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart. That's a promise. I don't know how many people I talk to on a regular basis who in some fashion or another ask me, how do I know if God has really saved me? How do I know if God really loves me? How do I know if I'm really in a right relationship with him? And the, the answer every time is, how's your heart? Because if your heart is soft, not perfect, if your heart is broken, if your heart is repentant, I love that definition that Petey gave last week of repentance. It's just turn around and head in another direction. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that you're striving in a new direction. If your heart is broken before God, if you're just vulnerable, if you've stopped pretending, the promise that God gives is he'll always receive you. Every single time. There's no exceptions to that. And so people who try to control things are just trying to manage their image. 1 Peter chapter 5 says God gives grace to the humble. Mark chapter 8 says those who try to hold on to their lives will lose them. But if you willingly lose your life, you'll find it. And here's why. Here's why God wants vulnerability from us. Here's why he wants us to give him our weaknesses is because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. What happens is you bring to him your weaknesses and he begin to say, hey, those aren't your problem. Those, those are actually your platform. The God would actually take Jacob and he would use Jacob in tremendous ways as part of his redemption plan based upon Jacob's weaknesses, not in spite of them. 
And so here's the, the question for all of us is, you want to be used of God, you want to find that sort of inner blessing, that inner peace, then all you got to do is go to your weaknesses. Chances are you probably know what they are. You're all too aware of what they are because some of us are so exhausted trying to hide them, trying to sh cover them up that, that maybe we just actually need to embrace our weaknesses because that's actually where God shows up most of the time. That's actually what God wants to use in your life. You know, every single weekend, right before I walk out onto this platform, there's this little area right behind that curtain. Uh, it's all dark back there, and there's a little stool, and there's some water, and there's a monitor, so I'm just kind of watching the, the service, and I'll just kind of sit down, and I'm just sort of, uh, I'll turn on my iPad and just kind of run through my notes one more time, and I'll begin to pray, and, and every single time I walk out here, I get nervous. I've had a number of people ask me, they, they'll say, hey, do you, do you, get, do you still get nervous? And I'm always like, every single time. And there's so many people that are like kind of surprised by that. And I'm like, yeah, man, every time. Because see, you, you don't understand my weakness is that I grew up like never imagining I would do anything like this. I was a shy kid, never wanted to get up in front of people, wrestled with God over even being used in full-time ministry. By the time I finally said I would do it, I said, God, I'll do anything. I'll move to Africa. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Just, I just don't want to talk in front of people. God's like, all right, you'll do that, all right? So thank you, all right? I am keenly aware. I'm keenly aware of my weaknesses. I see them more than maybe anybody else. And every single time I tremble and I'm like, man, God, I don't know. And, or or so here's what ends up happening. I'm either not confident enough or the times whenever God begins to speak, I, maybe I, get, I, I cling to it. Like I go, oh, man, people like me whenever I'm good. And so let me just kind of cling to that identity. You know what my prayer is every time backstage is, God, I don't want to need this. I don't want my identity wrapped up in how well I did today. Because if I did good, it'll go to my head. If I did bad, it'll go to my heart. And every single time I pray that, you know what happens on the inside right before I walk out here? Peace. It's just like the nerves just sort of like melt away every single time. Now, God may not be calling you into full-time ministry. God may not be calling you to hold a microphone. But what is it that you're weak in? What is it that you're scared to let go of? For some of you, it's your marriage. For some of it's you, it's your finances. For some of it's your relationship. What, what are you afraid of? What are you, what are you like holding on to with a death grip? Some of us, we're doing a whole lot of flapping and very little flying. And God says, man, would you just come to me? I'm not, I'm not actually shaming you. I actually, I'm, I'm really empathetic and compassionate with the fact that you're exerting all this energy and you don't really need to. And you want to find that inner sense of peace? You want to soar like wings like eagles? Then just bring to me your weaknesses. Just get real. You don't need to pretend. I already know. And watch what only I can do. In these next few moments together, it's just an opportunity for us to invite God in and to just get real. Maybe for the first time, somebody listening to this, you're just going to take off the mask for the very first time. And just get real before God. Stop managing your image. Just show him who you really are. That's all he really wants. And his promise is, I will never reject a soft heart. Father, we come to you right now, and I just pray that you would fill the room in every one of our campuses. And you would just help us to be real because Jesus' family tree teaches us that everyone else that, that existed behind us, they, they were fallen, flawed, imperfect, broken people. And Jesus came into this world through them, and he came into this world for them. 
And we are all unqualified heroes. God wants to use us in our weakness because whenever we give him our weaknesses, that's only when we begin to become strong. So God, I pray today that maybe for the first time somebody would get vulnerable enough to just make you Lord and Savior of their life, right there where they're seated, that they would just invite you in and trust that you will keep your promises because you always do. We ask this in Jesus' name.